0: Hello and welcome to episode two of March of History. I'm your host, Trevor Furness. My co-host today, my brother Brendan, will not be joining us. He has uh, another commitment today, but I'll be hosting this one solo. Now, there were some quotes I wanted to add in last time just to give you an idea of who Marius and Solo were, and then we'll get back to Caesar. Couldn't find him last time, found him now, so I'm going to just read them out to you real quick. So, Marius... When he had received that command in Africa against the King Jugurtha, that was kind of his first big command he gave speeches to the people, and one of them he talked about being accused of having low birth by his political rivals. And here's what he says in his speech, quote, "It's a little bit long, so bear with me, but quote, "I cannot, to raise your confidence in me, boast of the status or triumphs or consulships of my ancestors." But, if it be thought necessary, I can show you spears, a banner, comparisons for horses, and other military rewards, besides the scars of wounds on my breast, These are my statues. This is my nobility. Honors not left like theirs by inheritance, but acquired amid innumerable toils and dangers. He continues, my speech, they say, is inelegant, but that I have ever thought of little importance. Worth sufficiently displays itself. It is for my detractors to use studied language that they may palliate base conduct by plausible words. Nor have I learned Greek, for I had no wish to acquire a tongue that adds nothing to the valor of those who teach it, but I have gained other accomplishments, such as are of the utmost benefit to the state. I have learned to strike down an enemy, to be vigilant at my post to fear nothing but dishonor, to bear cold and heat with equal endurance, to sleep on the ground, and to sustain at the same time hunger and fatigue, End quote. So that's, that's who Marius was as a person. He was the people's champion. He was the warrior. He was the fearless man. Uh, and, and he was Julius Caesar's uncle. Now, going back to Caesar, and we're going to talk about more about Soul's personality a little bit too, but I promise this episode will keep it mainly on Caesar. Caesar goes to the east. Now, just to remind you, his family—he's very noble upbringing. He should be descendant from the goddess Venus or Aphrodite in the Greek version, and a prince of Troy that fled after the burning of the city. But his family had kind of fallen on hard times, and the area that he grew up in, the Sabura, it was a poorer area of Rome. He was surrounded by brothels. And a lot of say, maybe immigrant populations to Rome, which in their very snobby, aristocratic way, they say there's no snob like a Roman snob. Well, the Romans look down on these kind of populations. And the idea that somebody whose birth as high as Julius Caesar would be living next to, say, a synagogue, which they found actually remnants of a synagogue where they believe he lived, was almost like scandalous. Not that from today's viewpoint, we would see anything wrong with that, but the Romans did. And so he felt that he had a lot on his shoulders to kind of redeem his family status. And this upbringing actually gave him more of a man of the people type of feel to him because he he did encounter a lot of these other religions, a lot of these other cultures. He heard a lot of languages, a lot of other customs, and he became, I would say, more open-minded because of that than a lot of his aristocratic fellow future senators, the people that grew up in the high circles and you know were only ever around people of their own kind, and and he got a diverse education by growing up in these slums. So he flees Rome after getting malaria and being hunted down by the death squads and he bribes them and and his relatives intervene, like I said, and and he gets forgiven, but he has to flee. And so he goes into the military in the East. And the East that I'm talking about is like the Middle East. Or I mean it's, it's Greece, it's Turkey, it's maybe Egypt, the Greek Isles, Syria, this whole area. And they had just gotten over that war that Sola fought with that King Mithridates in that kingdom Pontus, which is in northern Turkey. And the, and the guy had invaded and, and killed all the Roman citizens. That war has been put down by Sola, but some of his allies, the Mithridates allies are still around. And one of them is a, is a city called Mytilene. Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly at all, but it's... uh the city of Mytilene, and it was uh, on an island in the Greek islands. Caesar joins up with the general responsible for besieging this city and storming it. Now, the Roman military commissions weren't so centralized as the state decides who goes where and and orders you and, and you're an enlisted man, especially for an aristocrat like him. You would basically write to people that were family connections and they would get you a commission somewhere. And if you had good connections, it'd get you a good commission somewhere. So he comes in and and he's working with this guy who's actually a a general is a strong supporter of Sola, who's still alive and and governing Rome. And this general sends Caesar as his first mission at 19 years old to this kingdom of Bithynia. It's a kingdom in Turkey, a small one. It's got an old king named King Nicomedes. And he sends Caesar there to get a fleet from King Nicomedes. To help invade the city of Mytilene, because they want to besiege it, they want to transport their troops there. And so that's Caesar's role is to get these ships. Caesar was a fashionable dresser. He was a very stylish person. And while that raised eyebrows in Rome, and and Sola thought that, you know, Sola commented on how he wore his hoga with a loose belt disapprovingly. In the East, they were all about style. So Caesar. Fit right in. They sent him to this Eastern kingdom, Bithynia, and Caesar spends quite a long time there. And contemporaries felt they spent too long there or longer than what was necessary to get the fleet. And so, as is so often in Roman times where they loved character assassinations, they just reveled in character assassinations of the most vicious type. And they begin to say that Caesar was staying so long in Bithynia because he had traded his anal virginity to King Nicomedes in order to get the fleet. Is it possible? Sure. Caesar denies it to the day he died. It's possible he, you know, experimented. Nobody really knows, but he denies it, and it was was a great rumor to spread. It was uh, one that seemed scandalous, so people loved to spread it, and it would kind of dog him till the day he died, because the way the Romans looked on homosexuality was not favorable in general. But definitely not so bad as, say, medieval Europe. But what was even more scandalous was to be seen in the submissive role in a homosexual relationship, which is what they said Caesar was. And I I have some quotes on it here for you. So it says, uh, and this is from Adrian Goldworthy's book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus. He says, stories began to circulate portraying Caesar as a very willing lover, claiming that he had acted as the king's cupbearer At a drunken feast attended by a number of Roman businessmen. Another tale had him being led by the royal attendants into the royal bedroom, dressed in fine purple robes, and left reclining on a golden couch to wait for Nicomedes. The rumors spread rapidly and were fed when Caesar returned to Bithynia not long after, claiming that he needed to oversee the business affairs of one of his freedmen. Now, he goes on to say, just to give an example of how homosexuality was seen in the Roman army specifically. He says that the dislike of homosexuality appears to have been fairly widespread in most social classes at Rome. And it was seen as something that weakened men. In the army, homosexuality within the camp was a capital offense from at least the second century BC. During the campaign against the Cimbri, Marius, Caesar's uncle Marius, awarded the Corona Civica, which I'm going to get, explain that later, but it's kind of like their Medal of Honor awarded the Corona Civica to a soldier who had killed an officer after the latter had tried to force his attentions on him. The legionary's conduct was held up as an example of virtue and courage, while the officer's death was seen as a fitting punishment for his excessive passion and abuse of authority. This was in spite of the fact that the dead man was a relation to the consul. Senators were not subject to such rigid rules As ordinary soldiers, but faced at the very least criticism and mockery if they showed a fondness for male lovers. Now, that story is a little bit different. This man got killed trying to rape a subordinate. That's a little bit different than just having a homosexual relationship, but it just kind of shows a little bit about their feelings on the subject. So maybe Caesar did, maybe he didn't. Nobody knows. He denied it to the day he died, and he never seemed to have had any other homosexual relationships in his life. So it seems somewhat unlikely. Uh, It may have just been rumor spread by people that disliked how overly confident he was and how flashy he was in his dress and appearance and figured they'd take him down a few pegs, but he does get the fleet and they go to Mytilene and in the siege, they end up storming the city, Caesar's front and center there. He ends up risking his own life and saving a fellow citizen's life. And for that, he's awarded the civic crown or corona civica himself. And that is, in all the depictions of Caesar, you'll see him with this laurel wreath or oak wreath around his head. That was not a crown. That was this military award. And you got it for saving another citizen's life or risking your life to save another citizen's life in combat. It was a big award and they were not given out lightly. So we don't know exactly what he did at this point. It's never really detailed in the sources. Earlier, Caesar's life is not as detailed as later on, once he becomes kind of a great man. But we do know that these things were not given out lightly, and he earns one in the siege. And he's only, again, 19 years old. And what this means is that when he goes back to Rome, he's able to wear this crown at all public occasions, public festivals, and it's, it makes him stand out as a military hero at 19 years old to all the people of Rome. You know, he walks down the street, and maybe he's just a guy, but oh wait, he's got a civic crown on. This is a war hero. You know, he's got the Medal of Honor pinned on his chest, except he wears it as a crown on his head. It even meant that at public festivals, when he entered the room. People had to stand up. And I believe, I want to say they had to applaud him as well, which you can imagine if you're his political enemy, you're not going to like that so much. <laughs> so he's in Turkey. He's in present-day Turkey, or really the Greek Isles. And he, he gets the ships from Bithynia. He continues on. He, he's in the siege. He wins the civic crown. And then flashback to Rome at the same time. Saul is still alive, but he laid down his dictatorship. So he marched on Rome. He made himself dictator, killed a whole bunch of people, and then inexplicably he relinquished his power. He was the arch-conservative. He he did a whole bunch of unethical things in order to, as he saw it, restore the way Rome should be. But he felt that people would do what he said and not do what he did, follow his words and not his actions. His actions did not match up with what his words were saying, and he didn't seem to comprehend that at all. But Sola's getting towards the end of his life. He's not a very healthy guy. He doesn't live a very healthy lifestyle. He's, he's prone to heavy bouts of drinking. He, he's got some bad lice now, some, some terrible skin conditions. But he's living, I mean, in some ways, Sola's living his best life. So let me, let me read a little excerpt from Tom Holland's book about Sola and the people that he hangs out with. And again, this is a man that's won the grass crown, which is similar to Caesar's civic crown, but an even bigger deal. A grass crown you get when you save an entire legion in battle. It, it's, it's extremely rare. So he, he's a ruthless soldier. He's a tough politician. He's a brutal murderer of uh, many hundreds, if not thousands of people. He's been at the highest echelons of Roman society. He's an aristocrat of the highest order. But again, he was raised in the slums. His original friends and the people that he grew up with were not the high class of Roman society. So Tom Holland, in his book "Rubicon," says, quote, "Because he was a private citizen, Sola's parties were inevitably a more intimate affairs. Whole days would be spent in drinking bouts with his old bohemian set. Dizzyingly high though he had risen, Sola remained as loyal in his friendships as he was implacable in his feuds. Actors, dancers, down-at-the-heel hacks. All had been tossed crumbs from the estates that prescribed. Prescribed were the people who were put on his list to be killed and their properties seized. He continues on, Those without talent had been given money never to perform again. Those who did have talent were cherished, however much they might have passed their prime. Brutal cynic though he was, Sulla would still flatter and Kasset a fading drag queen. Quote, Metrobius, the female impersonator, had seen better days, but Sola never ceased to insist that he was in love with him all the same. This is, and that's end quote, this is why I love Sola, even though he is, he's this brutal, ruthless guy that kills people left and right, and yet he's such a contradiction, because he sits there and he drinks all day, drinking bouts with actors and prostitutes and comedians and singers and mimes and uh, female impersonators, Metrobius, who he says he's in love with, this is breaking every Roman stereotype, everything that they think would be socially acceptable. He flies in the face of all of it. And yet, he's the arch conservative. He's a huge contradiction in so many ways. And if had anybody else lived a lifestyle like this, the Romans would be appalled, but they're so terrified of sola what are they going to say? So that's the kind of lifestyle he's living. It's not very healthy, but he's loving it. And eventually what goes on to happen? So Plutarch, who's one of the ancient sources, says about Sulla, and this is at the end of his life, Sulla has retired from Roman politics. Amazingly, nobody's tried to assassinate him whose family members he's killed. Uh, There's still too much fear of him. They would even say that he would walk through the streets without any bodyguards, without anybody to protect him, and nobody would dare lay a finger on him, even though he holds no official position anymore. They are in terror of Sulla. And Sola's living down in some smaller Italian town now, and he just can't help. He's an authoritarian kind of guy. Even though he's got no position, he can't help but interfere in all this small city's politics and, and try and control what they do and pass laws for them. And what happens is this public magistrate, Granius, was caught publicly bragging that he expected Sola to die any day now because he looks so unhealthy, and therefore he wasn't going to pay his taxes because... Once Sola's dead, there's no point in paying anyway. And Sola heard this and got so angry that he had this guy brought before him, this magistrate, and just went ballistic on him and had the man strangled right in front of him and got so excited and so agitated by all this that it seems that he had some kind of stroke right on the spot and then eventually died from it. So even in his death, Sola is a violent, brutal person. The same guy that likes to hang out with the actors and the mimes, the comedians, and drink with all the low people, and likes his drag queens, is also having people strangled to death right in front of him. Like, it's no big deal. So that happens, he dies, and that means Caesar can return to Rome finally. He feels safe. Oh, and one other thing. So Sola on his tomb, he has printed some words, or the gist of which you may recognize. As far as I know, this is the earliest... Mentioning of this statement I've ever heard. And it goes as such. He had written on his tomb, No friend ever served me, and no enemy ever wronged me, whom I have not repaid in full. Let me read that again. No friend ever served me, and no enemy ever wronged me, whom I have not repaid in full. Does that sound familiar? No greater friend, no worse enemy. That's essentially what he said. You know, I've never had any friend that served me or enemy that's wronged me that I have not repaid them in full, either via violent vengeance or by tossing money to his friends from back when he was, lived in the slums. So I thought it was a pretty cool line to have put on his tomb. So this means Caesar can come back to Rome. So Caesar does. He returns and immediately causes a splash. And he starts prosecuting one of Sola's Big-time supporters. So even though is dead, his regime is still in control of the government. And Caesar comes in, and he's, what, he's 23, 22? And he immediately starts prosecuting one of these guys for corruption. And he's got this all-star team of lawyers arrayed against him. And he's this young guy just challenging them. He's basically putting his life at risk because this is not taken kindly by the reigning regime. And I'll read you a quote that Tom Holland says in his book. So Caesar returns in 78 BC and Tom Holland says, quote, in a city still terrified of the dead dictator's shadow, Caesar was like a splash of color. Quote, he had a talent for being liked in a way remarkable in one of his youth. And since he had an easy man of the people manner, he made himself hugely popular with the average citizen. So even at this young age, He's got this easy man of the people manner. He's loved by people. He's a splash of color in this city, as he says, that's still terrified of the dictator Solo's shadow. And he comes in, and as he showed before, when he stood up to Solo, when Solo told him to divorce his wife, he does not get intimidated. He refuses to be bullied. And he immediately goes right at the regime and he tries to prosecute one of its key members. So he's showing from an early age that he is bold. And Tom Holland goes on to say, the year after his return from the East, he launched an audacious prosecution of one of Solas' former officers. The regime established by Solas still held a firm grip on power, and the officer was predictably acquitted. But Caesar's performance proved so effective that it established him overnight as one of the most admired orators in Rome. Already a war hero, seasoned in the practical politics of diplomacy and the provinces, Caesar was now also a public figure. He was not yet 24. I don't know about you, but reading that motivates me. Some people say that, oh, that feels, uh, it makes you feel bad about yourself. if You're not all of those things by 24, but I think it's the thing to aspire to be. So he, he's this incredible figure. He, he's making himself known already. He's spreading the word around Rome that he's somebody to be watched, an up-and-comer. He's a war hero. He's a, a great public speaker, one of the best in Rome now. He's seasoned in diplomacy in the provinces and in the Roman administration and military, all at this young age. Now, just to give you a little background on the courts in Roman times, they lawyers were not like they are today. They're more just private citizens doing friends' favors or looking for political advantage. The defense is considered the more honorable with comparison to the prosecution. You would defend your friends, and if you were somebody of note and somebody accused you of something, your wealthy or more likely influential friends would come to defend you and they would speak on your behalf. And a lot of it was almost like a popularity contest. The prestige of the person speaking on your behalf mattered as much or more than what they actually said. And a lot of times people would just declare somebody innocent based on the fact that somebody very prestigious had said, oh, I support this person. So it wasn't it wasn't about evidence. It wasn't about the minutia of the law. In fact, the Romans said that lawyers that relied on the minutia of the law were weak minded because they could not sway the audience's opinions. The real goal was to give a rousing oration, use all your prestige and convince all the crowd and the jurors that you were right and convince them an emotional appeal kind of way. In fact, there's even a story of Marius. It, it, was like a, it was a theater almost. So Marius, he was either in the defense or he was in the prosecution. I don't know what he was, but he was some way involved in this trial. And this great war hero, Marius, breaks down into tears mid-speech in the trial. These guys are <laughs> they're phenomenally theatric in these trials, and I would have loved to have seen one. But it's not what you think of today in the form of, of trials. You know, They wanted to draw a crowd. They wanted to make a splash. And they wanted everybody to watch, and it wasn't so much about the little minutia of the law. Caesar does another prosecution again loses, but even though he's losing these prosecutions, I know it's probably confusing. I'm saying how great he did, but he's losing. He never really expected to win. It was more, let me show that I stand for the people. Let me show that I'm against Sola and his regime and all the terrible things that they have done. Let me show that I'm willing to stand up to them. And let me show you how great I am as a public speaker. And what win or lose, it doesn't matter. He's made a name for himself. That's why he's doing this. He pr- tries to prosecute another Solon supporter, I believe. Again, the, the, the guy's acquitted, and so he decides then to go and leave Rome, and he wants to go to the Greek island of Rhodes, where there's a master instructor of oratory of public speaking. And he's going to go get trained there to get even better, the gifts that he already has. And to jump back for a minute, I said that the defense was the more prestigious or more regal of the two. I didn't really explain the prosecution as much. The prosecution was typically for younger people who are trying to climb the ladder. So they're trying to accuse somebody who has a lot of prestige, a lot of clout of something, and therefore be able to make a splash themselves in accusing them and therefore climb the social ladder. So it was considered the more moral thing to defend people than to attack them. But there are exceptions. In this case, these were people from Sulla's regime who were not much liked by the average citizens of Rome. So Caesar goes, he's going to Rhodes, he's going to go get this public speaking training. But as happens so often in Caesar's life, things go wrong. It seems that things are always going wrong in his life, and he, he has a very tough life when you think about it. And he gets kidnapped by pirates on the way. Now, don't think of Johnny Depp kind of swashbuckling pirates uh, having a good time. Pirates were the great fear of the Roman aristocracy. They were like terrorists in today's day and age. So it's almost like he was sailing across the Mediterranean and got kidnapped by a terrorist organization. This was terrifying, at least to most people. But Caesar takes an unusual tactic here. The pirates don't plan to kill him. They plan to ransom him off and therefore get money from it and get rich. And so here's what Caesar says to them. So the pirates demand 20 talents or say they're going to demand 20 talents. Talents is a a weight of gold or silver. It's a lot of money, but he's a young patrician. He's somebody that they think they can get this money for. Now, anybody else would probably keep their mouth shut and just be happy that they're going to live. Caesar, we're told, instead laughs at the price they say they're going to demand for him. Instead, he says he's worth at least 50 talents. So so they say they're going to ransom him for 20 talents. He laughs in their face and says that he's worth over double that and tells them to demand 50 talents. He then sends off some of his companions to go get the money for him, and they have to go... Again, he's not rich, so they have to go, I don't know, I guess borrow this from different people they find in the provinces, different family connections that he has. Caesar becomes legendary for the amount of debt that he has. Uh, at different points, he's got to run from his creditors, and he's starting early, he's taking on a lot of debt. But during this time with the pirates, rather than being shy or hiding and, and making sure he doesn't bother anybody because he doesn't want to get killed, he seems to think that he runs the place. Let me read you a quote from here. So Plutarch says, quote, He held them in such disdain, them being the pirates, that whenever he lay down asleep, he would send and order them to stop talking. For 38 days, as if the men were not his watchers, but his royal bodyguard, he shared in their sports and exercises with great unconcern. He also wrote poems and sundry speeches, which he read aloud to them. And those who did not admire these, he would call to their faces illiterate barbarians and often laughingly threaten to crucify them all. The pirates were delighted at this and attributed this boldness of speech to a certain simplicity and boyish mirth. So he's telling these pirates that, to their face that he's going to crucify every one of them and says it with a smile and a laugh. And they think that this is just a precocious young kid and this is uh, almost funny how bold he is he's playing in their sports with them he's reading them poems and then berating them and calling them illiterate when, when they don't like his poems or they don't like his speeches uh, he tells them to to be quiet when he wants to go to sleep this is not how they're used to having captives behave this is not how normal people behave when they're taken hostage by pirates so his friends return with the money the 50 talents he goes free and As a man of his word, he immediately sets about raising a fleet and an army to invade the pirates and seize them. And remember this, he does not have any commission right now. He's what? He's 25 years old. He does not have any government position. He's never held any government positions. He's not a member of the military. He has no legal authority to do any of the things he's about to do, but Caesar shows early on that. He's not one to be stopped by rules. He breaks the rules consistently. He always seems to think they don't apply to him, and it always seems to work out. So he raises these troops, he raises transports for them, and he just ambushes the pirates at their cove where he knew their hideout was, and he seizes them all, and he brings them back to the city, uh, the Roman city in the area, where there is a governor, a legally appointed governor. And he demands the governor crucify them all. The governor says, I'm not really interested in any of this. I don't care about your personal vendettas. I have bigger things to worry about. And so Caesar, getting impatient and irritated and seeing that this guy's not going to put these pirates to death for him, goes and just has the pirates crucified of his own accord. Again, no legal authority to have a whole bunch of people put to death, but he has them crucified. And these are the guys that he played games with, that he joked with. That for was it thirty eight days he lived with, and smilingly say I'm going to crucify you, and they thought it was a joke, and he was not joking. He crucified every single one of them. I've also read in some sources that he wanted to be merciful, so he slit their throats either slightly after they were crucified or before they were crucified as an act of mercy. Is in this case mercy's relative, but Caesar would become famous throughout his life for his mercy for his forgiving nature, and you'll see that as time goes on, but this is kind of the first story that comes out about Caesar's mercy, Caesar's forgiveness, even though from our standards, it seems pretty brutal. So Adrian Goldsworthy says about this, quote, He was 25 years old and a private citizen who had never held elected office, but this did not prevent him from persuading and controlling the provincials to gather and crew a number of warships, Taking charge of this force, he led it straight back to the Pharmacusa to attack his former captors. Complacently, the pirates were still in the camp on shore. Their ships beached and in no position to resist. Caesar's improvised squadron took them prisoner and captured their amassed plunder, including his own ransom, so he got his own ransom back to pay all the people that he borrowed it from. The 50 talents was presumably repaid to the donor communities while Caesar took the prisoners to Pergamum, where they were imprisoned. He then went to the Roman governor of Asia to arrange for the pirate's execution. However, the propraetor Marcus Iuncus showed little interest in imposing the punishment that Caesar had repeatedly promised to inflict. When it became clear that he would not act as quickly at the behest of some young patrician, Caesar hastened back to Pergamum and ordered the prisoners to be crucified. He had no legal authority to do this, although no one was likely to question the execution of a group of raiders. In this way, Caesar fulfilled his promise. However, he had clearly developed some regard for the men during his time with them, and anyway, wished to show his merciful nature, so he had each pirate's throat cut before they were crucified, sparing them a lingering and extremely painful death. So I guess he did do it before they were killed. You can imagine once this story got back to Rome that this caused a sensation. He was already a sensation in Rome, now he's dominating pirates when they capture him. He's laughing at their ransom amounts and doubling it. He's raising his own fleet. He's crucifying them all, just as he promised, but he shows mercy. and He does this all really without any legal authority, but it all works out for the end. He gets all his money back. He pays all the communities that raised the money for him back, and nobody's really upset that pirates died, so life's fine for him. So He continues on to the province and roads. And he goes to the public speaker and he perfects his public speaking even better than it was before. But then another thing happens. And again, he has no public position. I cannot say this enough. This is not the way people normally behave in Roman society. He seems to be absurdly bold to the point where you just wonder, where does this confidence come from? And why does he think he can do these things? Nobody would ever consider doing these kind of things. And so what happens now is war breaks out again with that kingdom Pontus, the same one that at fought, the King Mithridates, and they start raiding some Roman provinces. And there's no governor there, at least in this area, to protect it and to raise troops and to fight these guys off. So what Caesar does, of his own accord, again, nobody ordered him to do this. He goes to the province at 26 years old, and he raises his own ragtag army, and he fights off the invaders and actually defeats them and saves the province and saves communities. And they say that there was a lot of kingdoms that were wavering back and forth between the two sides. Who are we going to choose? And by defeating them right then and there, he stopped these current allies from becoming enemies, and the war could have drug on a lot longer. But he saw that nobody else was there to do this. He saw that somebody needed to step up, and he didn't mind not having the legal authority to do so. He knew that he had the ability to do so, so he did it. And that will be a recurring theme in Caesar's life. If he has the ability to do it, he will do it regardless of legal authority. And oftentimes, it is for the good of Rome, and that's why he gets away with it. If he just did it and it was vanglorious, treasure hunting, or, or something of that nature, I'm sure there would have been more problems with it. But everything that he keeps doing are in the best interest of Rome and the Roman people, so people turn a blind eye to it. Or maybe not everybody does, but enough people that the people that don't like it can't really do anything about it. So that's where we're going to end today with Caesar having fought off this invading army. Again, he raised the ragtag crew. Before I end it, I'm going to read you one more quote. Adrian Goldsworthy says of this last venture that Caesar has. Open war had once more broken out with Mithridates in 74 BC, and a detachment of Pontic troops had launched a raid into Asia, plundering the territory of people's ally to Rome. Caesar laid aside his studies and took a ship to the province. Where he raised troops from the local communities and with his hastily formed force defeated the invaders. The action, once again so swift, confident, and competent, was believed to have prevented some allies from defecting to Mithridates since the Romans had proved unable to defend them. Once again, it is worth emphasizing that he was a private citizen without any legal authority to act in this way. No one would have held him responsible for the damage being done in Asia if he simply sat quietly at Rhodes. Yet for Caesar, it was his duty to act since there was no properly constituted Roman officer available. It was also a splendid opportunity for him to make a name for himself, serving the Republic and winning personal glory in the process Were entirely proper ambitions for the senatorial aristocracy, although his was still rather unorthodox. So that ends our uh, episode today. I'll talk to you again in the next episode where Caesar goes back to Rome and begins his political career in earnest. I'll be looking forward to it. And until then, goodbye.